0: Pray together. Father, we pray now once again that you would once again show us your glory from your word. Give us, Lord, the ability to keenly focus in this hour uh, that we might clearly see from this text the glory of your Son. Our greatest desire is to know you more that we might love you better, and so we pray that you would help us to do that this morning. And we ask this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 3. We set the scene here. Uh, Saul... Established as the first king of Israel, but because of his disobedience uh, to God's word, uh, he has been rejected by God. And uh, God raises up a man after his own heart, David, and sends the prophet Samuel to anoint him as the next king of Israel. That happens all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. But Saul remains the king for many chapters and many years after that. And so throughout the second half of the book of 1 Samuel, we find David uh, through highs and lows, through episodes of faithfully trusting in the Lord and episodes of sinfully trying to take matters into his own hands, uh, we see David waiting for his time to reign. Well, as 1 Samuel ends and 2 Samuel begins, it seems like that time has come. Saul and three of his sons die at the hands of the Philistines in the battle of Gilboa. But just when you think that David's finally going to become king over all Israel, we find out in chapter 2 that only one of the 12 tribes, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, only one tribe has chosen to follow David. Now the other 11 tribes come under the rule of Ishbosheth, Saul's last remaining son. And so you've got a, a people divided. Uh, you've got two kingdoms. Uh, you've got two kings. Right? You've got David, uh, God's anointed, as king over the one tribe of, of, of Judah. He's ruling from the city of Hebron. And the commander of his army is a guy named Joab, uh, who happens to be David's nephew, uh, the son of David's sister. And then you've got Ishbosheth, uh, the last remaining son of Saul. He's king over the other eleven tribes, and he's ruling from the city of Mehennaim. And the commander of his army is a guy named Abner, who also was King Saul's commander. Uh, but it's uh, very apparent that Ishbosheth is like he's like a puppet king, right? He's like a figurehead. Abner is the one who's really in charge. Uh, the author even tells us in chapter two that Abner made Ishbosheth king. It's clear that Abner's the one who's really calling the shots. And 2 Samuel chapter 2 tells us about when Abner and his men come down towards Hebron, uh, towards the land of Judah, towards David's territory, and they're uh, at the pool of Gibeon. They're met by Joab and his men. And so the, the two sides, right, Ishbosheth's side and David's side, Abner and Joab, they engage in this representative battle, right? 12 on 12, my 12 best against your 12 best. And that settles absolutely nothing because the 24 guys all kill each other. And then the two sides just get into an all-out battle. And it's in that battle, the Battle of Gibeon, that David and Joab's side absolutely obliterates Ishbosheth and Abner's side. Now almost 400 men die in this battle. But there's one death that the author highlights because it's significant for what happens afterwards. It's significant for what happens in our chapter today. You see, Joab has two brothers— Abishai and Asahel. Now Asahel finds Abner during the battle and he starts chasing him on foot. And Abner realizes that it's Joab's little brother who's giving him chase. And and he pleads with him to stop. Go find someone else to fight. I, I don't want to hurt you. But Asahel persists. Asahel continues. And finally Abner has no choice. And so he turns around and he strikes Asahel with the butt of his spear. Now, from the fact that he used the the butt of his spear and not the sharpened top, uh, we can assume that he was just trying to knock out Asahel, trying to knock the wind out of him or something like that. He wasn't trying to kill him, uh, but whether it was Abner's strength or it was just the speed with which Asahel was chasing him, or maybe it's a combination of the two, uh, the spear pierces through Asahel and kills him. Now, Joab and Abishai, Asahel's brothers, They're angry, and so they continue to pursue Abner, but then Abner calls for a ceasefire, and Joab agrees, and so the two sides go home. That's where chapter 2 ends, and that brings us to our narrative for this morning in chapter 3. By the way, side note, uh, anyone who ever says that the Bible is boring— Like, clearly, they've never read 2 Samuel, The the events in this book are are some of the most, like, captivating, interesting, and bizarre things that you'll ever read. And chapter 3 is no exception. And so let's go through our chapter now. We're going to use a a nice little four-point outline so that we can track the arc of the story. Point number one, Abner leaves. Point number two, David receives. Point number three, Joab deceives. And point number four is Israel grieves. Abner leaves, David receives, Joab deceives, and Israel grieves. So let's get to it. Point number one, uh, verses one through 11, is Abner leaving. Verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became stronger. Weaker and weaker. Now this connects chapter 2 to chapter 3. Because remember chapter 2, the house of David scores this major victory at the battle of Gibeon. And here we're told it wasn't just one battle. This was kind of an ongoing thing. And through the ongoing hostilities, the house of David continued to grow stronger. While the house of Saul continued to grow weaker. Now look at verses 2 through 5. And we see a list of David's wives and sons. It's a first glance that kind of seems random, like almost like parenthetical, like off-topic, like, "Why is this here?" But it makes sense if you think about it. One of the ways in which David grew stronger and stronger is through his growing family. But as you scan your eyes through this list, uh, two things to just kind of jump off the page. Uh, first, uh, that's a lot of wives like I've said this before in our time in the books of Samuel, but I'll say it again because I think it's something that's often misunderstood. A lot of Bibles will read something like this and they'll say, well, that's just how it was back then. It wasn't sin. And it's true that we do see instances of polygamy in the Old Testament, but that was never God's will for his people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Jesus said, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage was always intended by God to be for one man and one woman. Uh, Anything outside of that construct, uh, in David's case, one man and six wives, is sin. And it's even worse in David's case— Because remember, he has been anointed as the next king of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 17 specifically says about the king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. I don't know how many uh, is many, but I'm fairly certain that six would qualify. But the second thing to notice, you look again at that list, Look at those sons whose names are listed. If you're familiar with what happens in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, like that is an ominous list. We see names like Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. Amnon's going to take Absalom's sister. Absalom's going to kill Amnon. Absalom's going to try to overthrow David. Absalom's going to die in a battle against David's men. Adonijah, he's going to declare himself king even though David declared that Solomon would be king after him. Like this list is just full of the dysfunction and the disaster that would characterize David's family life. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. When you have six wives, things just never end well. Now after he gives us that illustration of David growing stronger and stronger, right? though ironically enough, uh, it's going to be a source of great weakness later on for David. For now, at least, it's a strength. The author then points out that even though the house of Saul was getting weaker, not everyone in the house of Saul was getting weaker. Verse 6, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So you see the parallels between verses 1 and 6, right? Both verses tell us that there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Verse 1 highlights David's strength. Verse 6 highlights Abner's strength. And that's important for what happens next. Verse 7, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and I have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Now the accusation by Ishbosheth uh, that Abner had taken Saul's concubine. We need to know this isn't just a charge of like immorality or adultery. It's a charge of trying to take the throne. Right? It's a charge of like sedition and subversion and rebellion. It is a charge of Abner trying to make himself king by overthrowing Ishbosheth. See, back then, one of the ways in which a contender to the throne would try to seize power was by taking the wives or the concubines of the king. And so, for example, you remember how I mentioned Absalom earlier, uh, David's son, how Absalom would try to later overthrow David. What does he do in chapter 16? He publicly takes his father's concubines so that everyone would know that he was seizing power, that he was trying to take David's throne. And so Ishbosheth is here accusing Abner of rebellion, of trying to seize the throne from him and make himself king. Now, it's not quite clear from the text whether Abner actually took Rizpah or not. I tend to think that he didn't and that this whole thing was just a false accusation. Why do I say that? Well, first, look at how he genuinely seems offended He's genuinely angered by this accusation. Verse eight: Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. Am I a dog's head of Judah? Dogs. Remember back then, dogs were were, were not seen as uh, cute and loyal pets. We uh, perhaps have been indoctrinated by Lassie and Airbud. Uh, but back then, dogs were viewed as, as savage beasts as, as wild beasts. Uh, Abner's like absolutely appalled at Ishbosheth's accusation. "You think I'm like a wild animal who's working for Judah?" Side point. I uh, kind of feel justified in my uh, dislike for dogs, right? Just Trying to be biblical. It's another, another sermon for another day. All right. Abner appeals to his track record. Right? I've always shown steadfast love to, to the house of Saul. I don't know why he would say that if it was his intention to overthrow Abner. But, second, just think about it logically. Like, if Abner wanted to overthrow Ishbosheth and become king himself, like, why would he go about taking one of Saul's concubines and then trying to hide it? Ishbosheth had no power. Abner had all the power. He's the one who made Ishbosheth king in the first place. And so, kind of like, why would you do this roundabout thing and then vehemently deny it when you're caught? Why not just get rid of Ishbosheth and declare yourself king? And so, at least as I reconstruct this in my head, Ishbosheth, he's seeing Abner grow in power and influence and strength within his kingdom. And perhaps he gets paranoid that the people will follow Abner and not him. And so in jealousy, he accuses Abner of taking Rizpah and trying to overthrow him. Abner, in turn, is greatly offended. Greatly offended that the man who uh, he has served so loyally and faithfully is now accusing him of disloyalty and sedition. Like, I've been with your father's house since day one, and and you're accusing me of this? And maybe Abner is remembering King Saul. Because you remember what happened to King Saul. He becomes paranoid. He accuses his top military general and most, most faithful and loyal officer of rebellion and sedition. And I'm referring, of course, to David. And then Saul basically spends the rest of his life trying to get rid of David. Like Abner's seen this movie before. Abner realizes that Ishbosheth is becoming his father. And if Saul's kingdom was doomed, well, then logically, so would Ishbosheth's. Michael Ray Richardson once said about the Knicks uh, when their season was collapsing uh, the ship be sinking. Well, Abner realizes that the ship be sinking. Uh, Ishbosheth is unstable. Uh, He's a terrible king. Uh, The house of Saul keeps getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And maybe worst of all, all of the steadfast love and faithfulness that Abner had shown to the house of Saul was for naught because he's being accused of treachery and disloyalty. So Abner decides to jump ship before it's too late. Look at verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was a, a city all the way up in the north of Israel. Beersheba was a city all the way in the south of Israel. And so Dan to Beersheba, that just means the whole land. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. This, by the way, is another reason why I don't think Abner actually took Rizpah. If he did, like if he was trying to actively take the throne from Ishbosheth, why in the world would he switch sides as soon as he's called out for doing something that he actually did? Like, why would he contend for the throne and then give up as soon as he's caught? I think this makes more sense if it's a false accusation. And the false accusation makes Abner realize uh, just how pointless it is to continue on Team Saul, on Team Ishbosheth. And so Abner defects to Team David. Point number one: Abner leaves. But before we move on to point number two, I think there's a lesson that we ought to learn from Abner here. Because look again at verses 9 and 10. Look at how Abner references. What the Lord has sworn to David to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. Like there's no doubt about it. Abner was well aware of the promises of God. Abner knew. Abner could even recite the promises of God with regard to David's kingship. But, at least up to this point, Abner didn't trust those promises that he knew to be true. Like his life didn't reflect his knowledge. As a matter of fact, we see Abner over and over deliberately going against God's word. Abner goes against God's word by establishing an opposing kingdom, even though he knows that the Lord swore to David is to his throne. Abner goes against God's word by Ishbosheth. this king even knows that David is God's anointed king. Abner deliberately goes against God's word, biting against David's tomb. Verse 1, their long war between Saul and the house of David. Why? Because Abner's rebellion against God's word. Romans chapter 1, about how men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, primarily referring to God's witness in the nation. This is a This God's eternal power by nature being through like sunset and tree. This is an verbal quoted prod that knew to be true and yet still rejected. Abner's a tragic example of one who knew the word of God and could even recite the word of God to others and yet did not believe it himself as evidenced by his opposition to the kingdom of God. And that serves us as a gracious warning. The New Testament epistle of James warns us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. It's a repeated warning in the scriptures that knowing biblical truth, knowing the promises of God alone are not enough. It's knowledge that's then applied to how we live our lives that that's what ultimately counts sadly abner is just one example over the course of many years i've seen many men and women in various churches who really knew their bibles they could quote scripture they could tell you about this or that theology book that they just read They could talk all day and all night about doctrine. Then you look at their life, their anger, their persistent divisiveness, their very evident pride, their unloving spirit, whatever it might be. And it just leaves you wondering whether it's all just up here. Like if any of it is translating into how they live. Brothers and sisters, Abner serves us as a warning that we might not harden our hearts in the same way. Point number one, Abner leaves. Brings us to point number two, uh, David receives. Uh, That is, David receives Abner's offer to switch sides. And so Abner's decided in his heart that he's going to leave Ishbosheth and go to David. But Abner also knows that he can't just show up He is, after all, the the commander of the opposing kingdom that's currently at war with David's kingdom. So look at verse 12. He first cautiously sends messengers to David. Uh, To whom does the land belong? And the implied answer is David. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David agrees to make a covenant with Abner, but under one condition that he get his first wife, Michael, back. You remember Michael, uh, Saul's daughter, how uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, David pays the, the bride price by uh, killing a certain number of Philistines. Uh, but then when David was on the run from Saul, uh, Saul basically gives her to another man named Paltiel. Well, now David wants Michael back as a part of this negotiation. Wonder Why? I mean, like, like the man already has six wives, right? Like, why is he so adamant about having a seventh? Well, I, I'm sure that there was some uh, romantic element involved here. She was, after all, his wife. Uh, and twice in chapter 18, we're told how much Michael loved David, and presumably that uh, feeling was reciprocal. And I am sure that there is some, like, element of justice involved here. Just, just simply righting the wrong that had been done to him by his predecessor, But surely there was also a political element to this just being thrown into the negotiations. Because to have Saul's daughter back as his wife would give David credibility once again as Saul's son-in-law. It gives him legitimacy in the eyes of the pro-Saul people, a greater claim to the throne. Plus, and don't discount this, Marrying Michael once again would make him Ishbosheth's brother brother-in-law. And so maybe he thought that that would contribute to a more peaceful outcome. And finally, if if Michael could give him a son, well then that would literally unite the two houses together. Because that son would be both a descendant, a direct descendant of Saul, and a direct descendant of David. But as we're going to see in a few weeks, that would never happen. And so Ishbosheth and Abner, we're not entirely sure why the request first goes to Abner in verse 13 and then goes to Ishbosheth directly in verse 14. Whatever it is, and they agree to send her back. And her poor second husband, Paltiel, he follows after her. He's weeping all the way until Abner finally sends him home. And just look at verse 16 real quick. Her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Beharim. And then Abner said to him, go, return, and he returned. The only reason I point that verse out, it's just a really sad verse. But the story continues in verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Notice how Abner again appeals to the promises of God in verse 18. He directly quotes something that God said. We don't see that recorded anywhere for us in scripture. The closest is 1 Samuel 9.16 when God's talking about King Saul... And he says that Saul would save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Now, that's not to say that the same promise wasn't made about David. It's just to say that we don't have it written down anywhere in the books of First or Second Samuel. But once again, we see that Abner was very familiar with the promises of God. And he even uses the promises of God to appeal to other people. And it seems, verse 20, like Abner's proposal, is received well. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Point number two, and David receives Brothers and sisters, I think there is a second warning here that we ought to draw from the example of Abner. Because maybe you say, well, Abner, he did initially oppose God's promises that he knew to be true. But look, he, he eventually came around, right? Well, yes, he, he did eventually come around to David's side. But notice that he only does it when it benefits him. And he only does it under terms that benefit him. Like it's only when he realized that David's side's getting stronger, that Ishbosheth wasn't gonna be stable, only when he realized that going over to David's side was gonna be more advantageous for him than sticking it out with Ishbosheth. Only then does he go over to David's side. And he doesn't go to David in full submission. Like, whatever you want, right? Uh, that's what we're gonna do because you're the king. No, it's, let's make a deal. Make your covenant with me. Abner, even in his submission to God's word, he's just trying to get as much out of it for himself as he possibly can. Friends, submitting to God's word only when it's convenient or beneficial or easy, that's not the extent of true submission. Sure, true submission to God includes submitting when it's convenient or beneficial or easy. But it also has to include submitting when it's inconvenient and costly and sacrificial and difficult. I'll leave it to you to think about what that practically might look like in your life. Let me give you some examples to just kind of get the wheel spinning. It's loving that person who is difficult and challenging to love, uh, being long-suffering and and gracious with that person that just absolutely drives you crazy. It's helping that brother or sister with your time or your money when you really don't have that much time or money to give. It's continuing to trust God amidst long-term Physical afflictions or family struggles or difficult life situations. It's submitting to David's kingship simply because he is the anointed of the Lord, even when you have the opportunity to establish your own kingdom by making Ishbosheth king. Point number two David receives. Now, if the chapter ended right there, like right at verse 21, Oh, it's great, right? Because it seems like we're going to have a peaceful transference of kingdoms. Like Abner convinces all Israel, uh, the tribes that had previously followed Ishbosheth, to enter into this covenant with David, to make David their king. Uh, We saw how bloody the battle was in chapter 2. Like hundreds of Israelites died in that one battle at Gibeon. Uh, But here, it looks like we might have a peaceful, bloodless uniting of the tribes, of the two kingdoms under David's rule. An end to the civil war. The beginning of a season of peace. But not so fast. Because there's one major character who hasn't made an appearance yet in this chapter. And that's Joab. Remember Joab? uh, The commander of David's army. The the brother of Asahel who was killed by Abner in chapter 2. That Joab. Point number three. Joab deceives. Uh, Joab deceives Abner. And that deception is going to cost Abner his life. Now, I'm actually going to start reading back in verse 21 because I'm hoping you're going to notice a, a certain pattern in these verses. Look carefully at the verses. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. You notice how the author states three times that Abner left in peace. At the end of verse 21, end of verse 22... And the end of verse 23. And so peace kind of hangs over those verses like an ominous cloud, kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen. As an Abner left in peace, but Joab doesn't want any peace. Verse 24. Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Basically, he accuses him of being a spy. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sira. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab t- took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Remember, Abner left in peace. Like Abner thinks he's cool with David and therefore he's cool with all of David's men. And so he doesn't suspect anything when Joab sends for him to come back to Hebron. But there, Joab takes him to a, a secluded part of the city gate, maybe like a, like a hidden alcove or something. And he struck him in the stomach. And if you're here last time, you'll remember that's exactly how Asahel dies. Chapter two, verse 23, Abner struck him in the stomach. And so Joab gets his revenge and he does it with some poetic justice. But it's ironic because Joab berates David because Abner came to deceive you, right? Verse 25. And what does Joab do to unsuspecting Abner? He deceives him and now Abner is dead. Point number three, Joab deceives We can go a little bit further into this uh, revenge killing or whatever you want to call it. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament law, uh, you might be familiar with this idea of the goel hadam, right? The avenger of blood. You see, there's a part of the Old Testament law that dealt with uh, the specific situation of avenging the death of a relative Uh, There was supposed to be a a designated person, the Go'al Hadam, the the avenger of blood, who, who was responsible for carrying out vengeance when someone was intentionally murdered. Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, you can read about it later. And so you might think, well, Joab's justified in what he does here because he's Asahel's closest male relative. He is the avenger of blood. But remember... That provision in the law only applies for intentional murders. uh, What the Bible describes as lying in wait for someone. Like in chapter 2, the author goes like out of his way to show us that Abner had no intent to kill Asahel. Add to that the fact that Asahel's death happened during war. As David later points out when he asks his son Solomon to bring justice on Joab. And so the adventure of bloodstuff does not apply here. But there's even more to it than that because in the case uh, that a death was, uh, it was it wasn't immediately apparent whether, whether a death was intentional or not the accused person could flee to certain places cities of refuge uh, to wait for a fair trial. And When the accused was in the city of refuge he was supposed to be safe from the avenger. Well, wouldn't you know it The city of Hebron, where Joab kills Abner, happens to be, Joshua 27, happens to be a city of refuge. And so what Joab did to Abner was wrong anyway. But according to God's word, according to his law, there were six cities in Israel, the cities of refuge, in which it would have been especially wrong for Joab to do what he did to Abner. And they happened to be standing in one of those cities. All that to say... Joab shows a complete disregard for God's word in calling Abner back to Hebron and then murdering him there for the death of his brother. Now maybe all that leads us to suspect that there's something more happening here than just the avenging of his brother. Look, we can't help but to think that there's a little bit of, uh, of a rivalry, a little bit of a jealousy involved here Joab's no dummy. He knows that if Abner helps to consolidate David's kingdom, then Abner would then probably receive a very high post within the kingdom. Well, Abner is a military commander, same as Joab. And so Joab perhaps saw this as an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone, not only to avenge his brother's death, but also to get rid of his biggest rival, and you say, well, that, that's not fair to ascribe that kind of motive to Joab. Well, if you skip ahead to chapter 20, you'll see that Joab kills Amasa for that same exact reason because he was threatening to take Joab's position as commander. Point number three Joab deceives. That brings us to point number four Israel grieves, verses 28 to 39. Now, when David hears about what Abner did, remember, David has no idea that Abner even came back to the city. Uh, David immediately distances himself from the murder. Verse 28 I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And the rest of the chapter is basically David displaying to the people of Israel that he had nothing to do with Abner's death. At first, he makes Joab and his friends publicly mourn before the casket at the funeral procession, uh, which is really weird, right? Because Joab's the one who killed Abner. He's the one who put him there, and now he's basically, like, tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and mourning at the funeral. I don't know if that falls more in the category of, like, this is awkward or this is embarrassing or what. But then David himself follows the procession. And then at the graveside, he is weeping aloud. He is composing this lament, which, by the way, is the second lament that we've seen in three chapters of 2 Samuel. Verse 33, should Abner die as a fool dies? Fool there is Nabal. Should Abner die as Nabal dies? Which will have special meaning for you if you know First Samuel 25. And then he fasts for the rest of the day. He declares, verse 38, do you not know that a a prince and a great man has fallen today in Israel? Now, I'm not saying that his mourning wasn't genuine. I believe it was. But we also see David kind of going out of his way to distance himself as much as possible from Abner's murder. And it's probably because there were some folks in Israel who suspected that David was behind this all. Like they assumed that David saw Abner as a threat. And it was a customary uh, practice back then for an aspiring king to take out all of his rivals. And so uh, according to this conspiracy theory, David had Joab, his top military commander, take Abner out. Like these people didn't know about the, the covenant that Abner was trying to make. Uh, they, they didn't know that Abner was now helping David to unite the kingdoms together. Uh, they didn't know that David had absolutely nothing to gain from Abner's death. So David goes out of his way to make sure that the people know he had nothing to do with it. And it works. Look at verse 37. All the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Now look at how the chapter ends. David speaking in verse 39. I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, referring to Joab, And to Abishai, they are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So David's either unwilling or unable to bring about justice, to punish Joab for the evil that he did. And we've seen David exercise justice before. Remember how he puts the Amalekite to death in chapter 1. But he doesn't do it here. Uh, Maybe because he realizes that if he puts Joab to death, he might lose the army. Maybe he... uh, Just judges that they're too influential in the kingdom for him to go against them, at least at this point. We're not sure, but whatever the case is, uh, justice is not served. And David knows it. He just entrusts it to God. Uh, The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And in due time, that's exactly what happens. Uh, Joab is repaid according to his wickedness uh, by David's son Solomon. uh, Many years after this, who puts Joab to death for this murder. Friends, sometimes judgment for sin comes immediately. Sometimes judgment for sin comes later in life. Sometimes judgment for sin doesn't come until the afterlife. But we need to remember that God, by nature, is a just God. And so sin is always punished. Joab, you're not going to be punished now, but sin is always punished. Some of you are sitting here today and you know in your heart that you have sinned against God, uh, both in big things and in small things. Well, it's bad news because sin is always punished. Some of that may come through consequences of your sin in this life. Uh, Some of it may come later. Most of it's probably going to come at the judgment. But one thing is for sure, judgment is coming because sin is always punished punished. Which means that all of us have earned, uh, because of our sin against a holy God, an eternity in hell, where we will bear the punishment for all of our sin. But that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. That's where all the pictures of judgment in the Bible, including this one, point us to, That Christ came to suffer that judgment in place of sinners like me and like you. Uh, That Jesus willingly went to the cross and and died for the sins of those who would trust in him so that we might go free. So that we might even be made righteous. That we might have eternal life in heaven instead of eternal condemnation in hell. And sin is still punished, but the punishment is borne by Jesus on the cross instead of us in hell. And so we who have uh, trusted in Christ instead get to live forever in the presence of our God and our Savior, uh, enjoying his glory forever and ever. And so I plead with all of you, uh, maybe you've walked in here today for the very first time, maybe you've been here hundreds of times, but you've never believed, What well, I say to you, today is the day of salvation. Joab's delayed judgment, it's a picture of our own. And so I call you to repent and believe today that you might be saved. Well, friends, that's our story from 2 Samuel chapter 3. So recap, point number one, Abner leaves. Ishbosheth's accusation against Abner leads to him leaving and going over to David. Point number two, David receives... David receives Abner's offer and agrees to make that covenant with him uh, to peacefully transfer the entire kingdom under David's rule. Point number three, Joab deceives. Abner thinks everything's cool. David thinks everything's going to go well. But Joab tricks Abner and and wrongly kills him to avenge his brother's death. And point number four, Israel grieves. All of Israel gathers to mourn the loss of Abner. uh, Led first and foremost by David who goes out of his way to show that he was innocent in this matter. So my hope is that if you did not know this story before this morning, now you know the story. And if you knew the story before this morning, that now you know it better. Like, I hope you know now who who Abner is and who Joab is and and why there's beef between them and and why uh, Joab kills Abner and and why uh, David -David openly grieves uh, Abner's death at at the end of the chapter. Like, I do hope you know all of the details now of this story better than you did an hour ago. But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We don't want to miss the, the big picture of this chapter so let's just take a step back here from all the details and let's just think about what is happening in this chapter as a whole. Like, put yourself in David's shoes for just a moment. God anoints you to be the next king of Israel and it looks like it's finally coming to fruition. One tribe, Judah, declares you to be their king, uh, but the rest of Israel isn't following. Uh, as a matter of fact, they've got their own king, Ishbosheth. And so you're just patiently waiting. As you've patiently waited for years... For God to act, and after years of war between your kingdom and that kingdom, you, you you get this huge breakthrough. All of a sudden, like out of nowhere, the opposing general, who is the de facto king, the one who really holds the power in that kingdom, Abner, Abner just comes out of the blue one day and he says, "Hey, let's make a deal." And he offers to bring the other eleven tribes under your rule peacefully, without any more fighting you have this great first meeting with Abner and some of the elders. And as he leaves, he says, verse 21, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. It's finally happening. A peaceful uniting of the tribes so that all of Israel can have you as king over them. And like the hand of God in this is like undeniable. And you're praising him uh, for working in the heart of Abner, uh, somehow just suddenly changing Abner's desires. But then all of that is ruined. Joab just throws this huge wrench into all of this by killing Abner. Your top general just killed your new friend who was going to bring all the people under your rule. Maybe worst of all, some people are accusing you of masterminding it. And all the hope that you had for, for like this peaceful uniting of the kingdoms seems to be dashed, at least for now. And so we wouldn't blame David if he's absolutely crushed by everything that just happened in this chapter. Like Joab ruined Everything. there's a small little detail at the end of the chapter that we don't want to miss. I want you to look again in your Bibles at verse 31. David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the beer. King David followed the beer. We have known since 1 Samuel 16 that David would be king. 1 Samuel 16:1, God says to Samuel, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from his sons. Chapter 23, verse 17, now Jonathan is speaking, you shall be king over Israel. Chapter 24, 20, Saul speaking, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. For chapters and chapters and chapters, we have seen this coming, that David is going to be king. But now for the very first time in the books of Samuel, 2 Samuel 3.31, David is referred to as King David. And eight other times in this chapter, David is referred to as the king. It's as if the text is pointing out to us that even in the midst of all of this evil by Joab, even in the midst of all of David's plans, uh, his perfectly laid plans being ruined, even in the midst of all of this bad news, God is still at work in crowning his king. God remains sovereign. God remains in control. And God still ought to be trusted. David is God's king. Brothers and sisters, how often have we been guilty of forgetting this? Where we have like the perfect plan. Whether it be something as small as uh, this is how my evening is going to look, or as big as this is how I'm planning out my life, my education, my career, my family. Whatever it might be, we have this perfect plan and things seem to be going as we'd like. And then by some turn of events that we didn't foresee, maybe it's some wicked Joab uh, that comes and messes everything up. A wicked Joab who sins against you or sins against others in a way that completely derails what you had planned. How often does that bad news, that curveball thrown in our direction, then drive us to utter despair? When things don't go as we've planned. When our plans for uh, that school, or, or that job, or that home, or that trip, or that marriage, or that relationship, all of a sudden get derailed. When the circumstances that seem so perfect for uniting the kingdom peacefully get completely ruined by the selfish actions of your top commander... Believers, how often do we need to be reminded that regardless of what happens, God is still on his throne. God is still accomplishing his purposes. Like Joab's going to do what Joab's going to do. But David is still God's king. That has not changed one bit. He is King David as far as God is concerned. And we're going to see that come to its full manifestation in just two short chapters. One in chapter 5. He's crowned king over all Israel. Indeed, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so it's like what Job says. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But brothers and sisters, do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Does our heart's reaction To bad news. Joab just killed Abner. Does our heart's reaction to bad news show that we're truly trusting God or simply trusting in our own plans? Psalm 112. Does this describe us? The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we see in this chapter uh, the schemes of men, uh, great evil done by uh, great sinners. Lord, through it all, we see your hand of providence directing every single event, every single step. We see your sovereignty uh, shine through as the king whom you have crowned proceeds to his throne. And so God, we pray that we would be people who trust that and who live in light of that glorious truth that you are king over all, that you are sovereign and that you ought to be trusted by your people. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.